Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Book Club. First rule of Book Club is you must always talk about Book Club. Second rule of Book Club is tell everyone about Book Club. We're back. Time for another episode of Book Club, and we're on a new book. How do you feel about being on a new book, Mike? Um, do you know, I quite like Go Give Us Sell More. I'm quite excited about this one because one of the authors is Eads. He's quite I, I have famous, to say, quite I, a famous gentleman, really. We are in. Let's let's set a little test that listeners can do with themselves in their cars for five seconds. What book did Eads write? Answers on a postcard. Oh, we'll tell you in a minute. Oh, we'll tell you in a minute. So, Mike, we're in the rarefied atmosphere now. I think of some of the elite level thinkers in the world of sales. He definitely is, no doubt about it. You know, it. Key Feeds and Timothy Sullivan, we're talking about the guys that brought you solution selling. Exactly, yeah. And Timothy Sullivan is our guest on the show at the end of this book. So hang in there for Book Club this month. This is going to be a little belter. And the book we're covering is The Collaborative Sale, subtitle Solution Selling in a Buyer-Driven World. So what we're talking about here, and you know, Mike, how often do you talk to a candidate who will tell you that he is a solution salesman? Yeah, I mean, people don't use that word correctly. No. But what we're talking about here, the authors, the book that we're talking about, the authors that we're hanging out with here on the show today and for the next month are people that have actually coined a phrase that is an extremely common part of the vernacular of every salesperson on earth. Oh, yeah, it's like vacuum and hoover, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, so we really are playing in the in in the tall trees now with the big dogs, as uh, I think Gordon Gecko once famously said Let's on, get him on Wall the show. Street. <laughs> Michael Douglas. Yeah, absolutely. So we've done the first three chapters. We're on chapters one, two, three. Yeah. Um, and I actually, you, I actually read the preface, acknowledgement, and definition. I don't, I don't normally bother. In fairness, I, I well, you know me. I always start with. I, I literally, I, I read every page. Yeah, well, I have actually in this time. There's no skipping allowed. So let's start with the foreword, which is a foreword from Dave Stein, who's the founder and CEO of ES Research. What do you make of the foreword? Um, I thought the foreword was a good prelude to the book. I know it's a daft thing to say, but the foreword sort of sums up the first three chapters fairly well, doesn't it, really? Yes, it um, does. So it's well worth reading. Hang in there. And it, it had a touch of Bob Berg about it. I underlined, to aggressive sellers who do not have their best interest at heart. Yeah, I mean, we're getting this common thread about... It's the Americans. I know we have some American listeners, but I think... We do. Amer- yeah, we do, yeah, absolutely. I got a little bit of a surprise. I got an email off somebody in America the other yeah, day asking... Yeah, and, and to you Americans, your cultural statement is different to the Brits, actually, in terms of how they sell. I've always thought that. The Brits are very different to the Americans, different to the Aussies, different to the South Africans, in terms of the way that they sell. And this... Go giving theme is actually undercurrent of the American sales culture, I think. Okay, interesting theory. Mm. Interesting theory. So yeah, it, it, there's, but I don't feel like there was a very Americanized vibe to this book oh, as, I I, as I've picked it up. On I it, definitely really. did. I like the fact it, it it makes reference to empirical studies. You know, I'm into that. Yeah, adds a bit more of a science. I like it. Yeah. Um, and then the preface goes on about the millennial generation, who are now. You know, when you think about it, the millennials have now, they're now buyers. They're in a buying power position, aren't they? Yeah, some of them are in very senior positions in organisations now. Yeah, exactly. 100%. You know. And they think 
and, and they do. You were born in 1996. You know, you're, you know, you're 22. Is that right? Thanks, Lauren, who was born in 1996. Yeah. So you're in your, you're in your early 20s. You know, you look at my nephew's 25. Uh, he's in a very senior role already in his career. He's a millennial. So anyway, he's a millennial. So and he's making decisions. Big decisions. Exactly. So we've read the first three chapters, haven't we, I think? Yes, we have. And they've given us some definitions here, which I do think if you're picking up the book and you're reading along with us, they are worth understanding the distinction between a buyer and buyer 2.0. Well, there's a whole chapter dedicated to that. Yeah. And and one of the things I think we'll come to is he talks about this definition of buyer 2.0 in the book. Modern buying behaviours characterised by an abundance of research and information gathering engaging much later in their buying process and having an aversion to risk. And a lot of this book is going to be about how, as a result of the fact that there's so much information readily available, we've almost got this new type of buyer that isn't reliant on the salesman in reality to make the procurement. Mm, mm. I actually think that this book was written about 10, 11 years ago. I think that's accelerated now. I bet when we get Timothy on the show, I bet if you asked him, he would tell you that actually we're into buyer 3.0 now if he yeah. could rewrite the book. Yeah, very possibly. Um, and I think that the, what is happening in the world of buying is really changing in many respects. The other thing I'll say about this book, actually, before we get stuck into it properly, is this book is more a discussion topic than a manual. Yeah, I'm so... I'm a fan of a manual. When we were talking this morning, and I just come back from getting a coffee, and, and you were a bit like, well, it, I've enjoyed reading it, but I haven't got any takeaways yet. Oh, I have, actually. With all the books, what I do is I write down uh, key action points from oh, all the I books. Oh, I like that, Mike. How are you doing that? So you're writing that in the inner sleeve. I write key action points. I write down as many as I can, then I'm going to pick five. Uh, and I do that out of every book. I've already picked uh, two so far. So I was, you know, I thought it was it's interesting. You've got to take action points out, out of it to turn it into a manual. This is like a chat with a really clever person down the pub about getting you thinking about selling Mm, yeah or that's where we're at so far isn't it so we start off chapter one the story in inverted commas and what's behind the collaborative sale and he he tells this fabulous story about john the sales superstar um who was hired by salesforce who got (laughs) that's what he read like didn't it it? pretty much reads like he got headhunted to go go to something well no he was at salesforce and got headhunted to work for a small software vendor that was a bit of an upstart and couldn't flog anything yeah yeah he he works for a product pitching company where you turn up pitch your company and your product yeah you don't really need to listen to the customer or care yeah and his sales manager nancy said come on And and he's struggling badly he can't flog a thing and he's giving him a bit of the old John magic, but it's not quite happening for the poor lad. Um, and <laughs> something that made me laugh here in the story, page five, Mike, um, she says, she really nails his hat on, doesn't she? I reviewed your CV. She's a real it? silent assassin. Yeah, I, lo- I love Nancy in this story. I-, I reviewed your resume as I was waiting for your plane. You've had a good run working with a series of high-tech companies. Not to sound like I'm interviewing you for the job all over again, but tell me why you change jobs every two or three years. Yeah, um, I liked it. <laughs> she's my kind of girl. Wow, Nancy, that's quite an opening volley. I'm not a job hopper. Just a guy who knows how to manage his career and work his way up. I was always recruited away. I'm good at what I do. I'm just not sure what's wrong with Exirisk. Um, and you and I hear that a lot, don't we? People who will say they were headhunted when in reality there was probably something fundamentally wrong with the job that they were in at that given point in time. But we'll talk about that on another day. Um, and... <laughs> Then she really nails him and says, looking at the companies you represented and when you were with each one, I know that you've succeeded with strong wins at your back. So she's really nailed this character, hasn't she? Yeah, but I think it's important to understand what she's talking about here. The underlying statement is, 
Johnny's the salesman in this story. Nancy's his boss of Exy Risk. No, she's a, she works for the VCs. Though. Oh, whatever, you yeah, know yeah. what I mean. And um, uh, she's saying, listen, John, you're from a product pitching company where it's just about you. And she's then introducing the collaborative sale where you've got to work with them, basically. And she's also saying, listen, you've always had an easy life and now you've come here and you've not. Yeah, but it's the why that's important. Yeah, absolutely. So therefore, what she really is trying to get to with him in the story and in the allegory is what you're not perhaps quite doing is collaborating with your client to help them understand where the value of your technology is. And that's pretty I, much I think the it's more story. than that, actually. She's also saying you're not... And it goes on later in the book, in the next chapter, to say this. You've got to collaborate with the buyer to understand where the buyer is in their buying process. Yes. Because it's, it's painting a picture of a two-way street, really. Yes. And about being much more of a partner to the customer. Because I don't know whether it's um, in this this chapter or, or another, or whether it's John or not, but there's one of the stories about some some fella turning up and doing a whole product pitch and company pitch, and the buyer going, listen, I didn't want that. We already know that. We've done our research. Is it in this chapter or the next I one? I think it might be in the next one. Is it? Right, okay. Yeah. Absolutely. So, uh, and then they start, we actually start getting into some stuff based on some research here. Individuals working independently on a problem before coming together as a team generated almost three times more ideas and high quality ideas than a group brainstorming together. So the two lessons that we get from this is one, to collaborate effectively with the buyer, sellers must first understand the buyer's issues, develop ideas and hypotheses on how best to address. Two, sellers who use a transparent and readily understood structure for collaborating with buyers produce better outcomes than those who engage reactively with no or poorly defined responses. And then what he talks about is, the he gives a load of advantages uh, into what is collaborative selling, doesn't he, here on page 11. He does, but do you know I put at the top of page 11, it's great, this whole collaborative thing. <clears throat> and, I, and I do agree with it, actually. But what the book doesn't actually make any reference to is, what if you're in a really competitive situation where everybody's trying to collaborate with the buyer? Yeah. The buyer's going to stop collaborating, then at I some point completely. you've got to sell. He doesn't ever say that. He makes his, makes his basic assumption that actually the, the person to whom you're pitching is going to want to collaborate with you. And, it, and it's great. And actually it's right a lot of it saying that the prospect's going to have done loads of research, blah, blah, and then they're going to come out to you. But I think it's a bit naive as well, because the prospect's going to have done loads of research. They're going to reach out to Salesforce and Microsoft and Workbooks and whichever CRM company, and all of those salespeople are going to want to follow this process and try and collaborate. Well, they're just not going to buy into that, I don't think. I concur, Mike, completely. I, I think out there in the world, beyond our window, there are two combat sports being fought. One is Queensbury Rules and the other is the UFC. And I think that this is a Queensbury Rules book. And what I'd love to see is somebody to write a book that says... Yeah, but says, you didn't like The Wolf. The Wolf's UFC. I did like The Wolf. The Wolf's UFC. My objection is to Jordan Belfort because I just feel that he's a little... Uh, well, he uh, lies is the problem. Yes. And I'm not for lying. But do you know what I'd love to see? Is somebody that writes a book with an honest opening page that says, this is a book on how to plot, scheme connive, outmaneuver your competitors and win business. In tough, brutal, competitive scenarios where your product ain't that good. Because actually, that's the real scenario for a large proportion of the people out there. It is, but bear in mind, a lot of these books are, you know, are made for the sales forces of the world. They're made for... This, is, this book is written for guys that work at IBM that are invited to every party. Or Oracle. Yes. 
that, uh, that's the context. But, but, you know, when you look at it, you know, the UK economy, I know this from some research. But he's positioning it that, actually, if you work for a little small street fighting vendor, if you collaborate enough with your buyer, you'll be all right. Which he might be right. Yeah, and, I, and, and I please understand, listeners, I, I've actually quite enjoyed the first three chapters of this book, more so than probably, to be fair to Bob Berg, whose book I actually took a lot out of. I, uh, They're very uh, different books, though. You can't oh, compare mark- them. Markedly different you know, books. It's, apple, it's apples and oranges and he, as a conversation. It's interesting he talks a little bit here about collaborative portals, which, you know, I get that. We've moved on a little bit now. You know, customers and suppliers are connecting Slack channels to each other. Um, but... People actually aren't, oops, just broken the thing on my pen. People aren't actually collaborating in that way, I think, how Timothy saw it would happen. I think his vision hasn't quite come. I, I'd be interested if any of our listeners would drop me a note and let me know, for example, if they have an open Slack channel between them and their client. I think that level of collaboration is going to come with the bots a little bit more, isn't it? Yes. The bots the bots are going to move bots towards that. or chat, open chat channels, definitely, yeah. Absolutely. So then we're into uh, number two, chapter two. Solution selling meets the new buyer. Um, and more than one million sales, sales management and marketing professionals around the world count on us and use our branded sales methodology known as solution selling. Brackets, rights reserved. And rightly so. Uh, they own the rights to the to the phrase. Um, I, t- I, t- I thought about this. I put a summary at the start of the chapter. I think it's an interesting chapter that talks about, you know, the new buyer and how you need to be a new seller. It doesn't seem to at any point say... Why don't you just ask questions to understand what the, what, what the prospect's needs are and then sell to them? Maybe we'll get to that later in the book. I hope so. Yeah. So what we're talking about is the emergence of a new buyer in this chapter, aren't we? Yes. And, and actually, when you read the book, you just cannot in any way dispute any part of that. No. So the, the main gist of where we're at here is, you know, when I first came into sales and sales recruitment back in 97, there was no internet really. And actually, most of the guys I worked with as candidates, they were the authority on whatever it was that they were selling. Mm. And therefore, actually, they, you know, Christ, we dealt with some pretty wide, naughty boys in those days. They could pretty much, and remember, technology as an industry was so nascent that you could pretty much tell a customer anything and they'd believe you, other than mm. potentially dealing with the information that they got from A and other salesmen in comparison to that which the existing salesman had told you. And what the book is saying and what Timothy is saying is, actually, now buyers have got loads and loads and loads of information and they are miles further into their buying journey. Well, buyer 2.0 is. Yes, they're miles further into their buying journey at the point at which they engage with you, the sales professional, than they might have been back in the late 90s where actually you were their source of research and market understanding as a, as a salesman. Yep. And you can't dispute that. Nope. If anything, as I said earlier, I think we're into buyer 3.0 because I think that we're in at a point now where not only have buyers got access to all the information, I actually think buyers are now overloaded with information. I agree. I think the important thing to take from that is, A, that's correct, but B, the knock, what that actually means to you as a salesperson is... <clears throat> What these guys are saying is that the salesperson's influence comes much later down the buying process line. Yes. He said originally you would have the chance to feed information to the client, which would then um, uh, would then run all the way through their buying campaign, whereas it's now saying you're going to turn up to try and sell something 
all the information that you would have given them in 1990, they've now got. Correct. So you're much later on, and I'm sure what it's going to talk about is that it's much more difficult, in their opinion, to influence uh, the outcome the, of the, the deal. Like I saw, a, I was doing some canvassing yesterday, Mike, and I came across a company that wasn't in our database that I've added and put onto a canvas list. It was a company that's selling a, an AI product, sort of a self-service AI solution. Really cool looking business, actually. On their website, there is an option to download the product now. Free. Here you go. Download it. And that is what he's talking about, is that actually, if you're an intelligent buyer, which in reality, if I'm buying an AI solution, I probably am anyway, I can download it, install it, start working with it, play with it, toy with it. At no point have I engaged with a salesman at that point. Don't know about that. I reckon you've probably got to put your email address in. Of course you do. I reckon they might capture you those leads. But that's what you're saying is the but what, what and what he's saying is the buying journey is different. I'm already playing with your product before I've spoken to a sale, an SDR on the phone. Yeah, yeah, which is true, which is true. And that's a big shift, isn't it? For you know, particularly I think for our candidates that are probably my age, that will have been a big shift over a period of time. You probably. know, your, your millennial sales guy, he doesn't know anything different. No, I mean, I really hope the book's going to get into how to influence people later on. In the process. In that, in that process, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and then he talks about how the millennials coming and he gives us a, a bigger update on the demographic against baby boomers. Oh, there we are. So, num- so page 20, this is the example I was giving, where somebody's, uh, where the, he said, I don't know if, if it's true, probably a made-up one, isn't it? Um, where the sales guy's turned up and actually... Um, the client's done a lot of the research. The sales guy tries to take them back to the first point and tell them about the company, and the CFO goes, well, we know all that. Yeah. So what, what are you telling us that for? It's all public domain information. I've already seen it, mate. Yeah, I've yeah. already looked at your product. And that the sales process was much further along. Yeah, absolutely. I thought this was just fascinating. Not the, I mean, it's all quite interesting, I guess. He said, millennials switch attention between media platforms an average of 27 times an hour. Yeah, and that was written 10 years ago, Mike. That's incredible, that, isn't so it? So can you imagine what they're doing now? Isn't that incredible, though? Yeah. But I, I would imagine you can double that statistic now. Possibly. Well, that means they did one a minute, so probably not. All right. I bet you could I bet you could half it and add it on top, given the know. accelerated That's... nature of the world we live in. Okay, well, so what page are you on now? I'm on 25. Oh, so am I. Yeah. So uh, then he talks about buying journeys, which is well, really well, interesting. Well, then he, he also talks about the psychology of buyer 2.0 and it says why is this what you know why is buyer 2.0 where they are one is they've got access to information but two there have been a period of sustained economic unpredictability which if you think about this whole brexit thing that's hanging over if you think about you're trying to sell technology to somebody a they've got more information than they've ever had b the future is less predictable yeah so what's going to happen with brexit reality is nobody actually really knows other than that, it'll probably never happen. <laughs> well, but you don't know that. You know, nobody knows, do you? That's, no. that, that's the simple reality. And that's the second part of the jigsaw here that they're talking about, which is what makes buyer 2.0, you know, a tough nut to crack, is the other economic There's, there's something here he's written on page 26 I don't agree with. He talks about unprecedented, unprecedented level of buyer concern about risk manifesting itself in several ways. And one of which is he said there are more now people go through more thorough buyer evaluations with more people involved in the buying process. To an extent, I'm inclined to disagree with that, Mike, and I'll tell you why. I think it's easier than ever now with enterprise software or a large amount of enterprise software for a buyer to try and test 
and play with software for a number of reasons. One, we've got SaaS, haven't we? So I can ring up a SaaS cloud vendor and I can get a trial or a pilot. You can charge Salesforce for 30 days or whatever. Correct. You know, it's an enterprise software product, but I could be, if I decided, oh, my CRM vendors pissed me off today, I can trial it tomorrow. But that's not his point, though, actually. It is. because I, think, I, it is. I think he's saying there's more people involved because the risk's higher. Yes, but the risk isn't higher because actually I've got more access to evaluating my risk in a much easier way than no, I've ever I think, had. I, yeah, I'm he's, no longer... He's not talking about the risk of the purchase. He's talking about the risk in a business, isn't he? Is he? I think he's talking about risk of purchase. Oh, I think he... I, I don't. And then he says more, more buyer decisions to remain with the status quo. I wonder if that's still the same 10 years on from writing the book. I'll be interested to talk, talk about that. Um, and then more involvement by formal procurement departments. Okay, that's not an, a world I know about. I'd be interested to get some opinions from our listeners, particularly perhaps those that have come through the ages as to whether they've seen that. Well, he talks about the rise of the procurement department and the reason as to that being, doesn't he? And yes. he cites that to risk. And what's interesting is I've just been listening to a book called Oversubscribed. Yep. Have you read it? It's all right, I thought. Yep. Um, and he talks about, he said, if you're going to set up a business, one of the key people you should have actually uh, is, a procurement sell, is a procurement person. Right. Interesting. Okay. And now he talks about adapting to the buyer 2.0 paradigm. Yes. I like this one. He said, we've seen organisations invest heavily in product training, thinking better understanding of their capabilities will enable sellers to have more meaningful conversations with buyers. Usually this simply leads to a more focus on product selling instead of understanding customer problems and therefore to misalignment with buyer 2.0. I 100% think he's right about that. I think what happens is, you know, uh, Jonathan Graham Inc. goes out and downloads, you know, Sugar and Salesforce and Zoho. And actually, he's a bit of a smart ass because he's in the IT department. He thinks he knows what he wants. That then drags the uninitiated salesperson people from each of those three companies to just pitch product, but that's not want the, what 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 the buyer wants because the buyer's already looked at the product. But the good one, yeah, the smart one is going to understand the pain. Correct. Understand and, the and business. And that's what I put at the start of the chapter. I'm not sure that it this chapter digs into that because what it should be saying is, listen, Jonathan, you've looked at Zoho, Sugar, Salesforce. Can we just take a step back? Why are you buying a CRM system? Yeah. What do you want it for? Why are you buying it? What's your problem? Why aren't you using Excel spreadsheets? Whereas then? what it's saying is this book, well, his point there, Eads or whoever writes that bit is, he's saying actually the salesperson just blindly walks in and pitches Zoho to Jonathan. Well, I had Salesforce on the blower the other day. Well, what was he doing? Pitching. Pitching. Did he ask you why, you know, when's our contract? That's unfair, actually. Killian, if you're listening, that's unfair on you. What's his name? Killian? Yeah. Good name. Hello, Jonathan. It's Killian from Salesforce. Um, well, it's from Scotland. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. From Wales, yeah. Um, that's unfair on him because actually he has some But really you know what I mean? Questions. That's his point. And then he makes another point, whoever writes this on Facebook. He makes 30. another point there as well about, we've seen organisations invest in automated support tools for the sales team, CRM, knowledge management, sales enablement applications, thinking these systems will improve efficiency and thus close performance gaps. CRM and race tools can be useful, but if they don't help with sales effectiveness rather than simply... Sim, uh, simply uh, uh, their efficiency, you may be in for a disaster. Think about it. If sellers are doing the wrong things and you improve their efficiency, you may only really be helping them to do something bad or poorly more often. I think the world's changed a little bit since he's made that comment because actually what we're seeing now is a world, uh, particularly at SDR level, where 
there is a whole load of automation taking place at that early stage of the buyer journey. It's interesting you say, I do agree with that is happening. I I just think that that, you know, if you said to me, say, come on, Mike, have a bet. Uh, Will um, automation software, selling automation software be bigger in 2020 or 2025? I'd say 2020. I think that's just reaching a saturation point now where people are just getting pissed with it, really. Your email yesterday. Oh, yes, that's right. Uh, I sent you an email yesterday through an automation tool. Now, actually, let's now, get it right. Some of, now, I'll tell software? you what I think. I think that people are rumbling the current automation tools, but I think that when AI kicks in, I think that there is going to be a buyer 5.0. Right now, we're still at the back end of AI I, I winter. Don't, I don't think in the B2B market. I think in the B2C market, because i tell you where AI... Don't and, agree. Oh, fair enough. I think where uh, AI kicks in heavily is in... Uh, next, you know, the retailer contacting my wife because she's not some, she doesn't live in the commercial world. She volunteers in a school. Yeah. Whereas I think, you know, let's say inward revenue using whatever it is, Tap or whatever we might want to use uh, to sell to, you know, sales director, sales force. He goes, oh yeah, right, whatever. I've seen one of these before. I've seen. Yes, but that technology will increase personalization and the AI will make it cuter and cuter and cuter and cuter and cuter and cuter and cuter. Well, maybe we ought to have a bet. We should have a bet, shouldn't we? I hope I lose. I think you will, so we'll be all right. I hope I lose very, 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 very much in that particular argument. So anyway, page 30, he said, uh, so da, 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 he goes, marketing and sales are blurring together. I tell you what's very interesting now is, I, I took a brief yesterday actually from a client and he sent me the organisation chart and he said, he, he sent it so you know I could see where the roles fitted into the, uh, into, into the organisation. What he also sent me was uh, the spectrum of lead generation to close, mm-hmm. and it and it and it sort of went from like blue to red, you know, blue being uh, lead generation, red being close, and it blurred because I think it has blurred now, hasn't it? I, think I, we, I agree completely. I think he's absolutely bang on. He this talks guy. later about being a micro marketeer. Yeah, he does. Yeah, absolutely. And what he, he he talks about this situational fluency and what I think is really so. We'll we'll talk about being a micro marketeer later. I do think that we've I've seen a fundamental shift in in the industry and I've seen a fundamental shift in what is and isn't making some of the candidates that I work with where I look at them and think you're a top boy a lot of them are actually now fabulous micro marketers they're better than that though a lot of the top ones a lot of the really top ones actually generate and build their own brand as part of their marketing function uh, well it's conjoined it's a personal Brilliant. brand and they then bolt the company's brand on top of their personal brand. Absolutely, yeah. And they conjoin them in a very I'll tell you, best way. who was best at that. He works at Microsoft now, he's Rob Pope. I thought he did that brilliantly in a fabulous personal brand in the CRM market. Lovely, yeah. old he ended up at Microsoft. I've not spoken to him for years. I guess he's doing well. Yeah. So then I like Now hiding actually. behind Microsoft's brand. Ooh, did I say that? <clears throat> Buyer 2.0 is a comparison shopper. I just can't tell you. Whenever I'm about to buy anything, I just use the word versus in a Google search. Me too. Literally, it's well, the first thing we're, I do. We're making, we're making at the moment um, an important mission-critical technology procurement for our business, aren't we, as a result of a supplier deciding to tell us that they were sunsetting their product. Marketo! Um, and as a result, it's left us a little bit in the lurch. So you'll just put whatever it I've is put, versus... Yep. I came up with four suppliers in under 30 seconds mm. 
and uh, I've evaluated, I had a demo from one yesterday. I've got another one on trial now. So this is my point. Yeah. Is Mate of mine's a CIO of a bank. Yeah. Like a proper, he's a properly top guy. Don't know why he talks about me. And um, he, he, he uses, we were talking about it because he's quite into photography. And he said, oh, you, uh, I just use Canon Versus. I said, you do that in your, in your real day, in your real life job? He said, yeah. Yeah. And he just bought a Gartner Magic Quadrant leading low-code platform. I said, how do you find it? He just put, I put that Versus. Which when you think about Which it, is nuts. such a paradigm shift. And he's such a top guy. You know, he's not like he's an idiot, this guy. He's a yeah. properly it's top an, guy. It's just an immense paradigm shift. Yeah, yeah. If you think about Because I'm putting Versus. What? I'm finding information. Whereas, you know, 10 years ago, I was getting the information from the sales guy. Now... If you think about what a 45-year-old salesperson, where he was at 20 years ago in his mm -hmm. career, mm -hmm. and where that leaves us now. Mm -hmm. and, and that's what I say about this book. Is it's, it's a monumental it's a paradigm shift. point. Yes, it now, is. Now, the next chapter, I just thought was excellent, actually. He talks about situational fluency. Yeah. And there's a diagram in it. Oh, I laughed last night when I was reading this, because I, I and I actually wrote, Mike will love this diagram. I love a diagram. Yeah. Okay. Pie chart, even better. Yeah. So let's talk about situational fluency then. Let's just discuss what it is. Yeah, because I and, and one of the things he points out about this is if you're not hiring for situational fluency, he, he, he believes if you're not hiring for situational fluency, you're pretty much stuffed. So the first thing he explains is the classification, the, tra the traditional classifications of a salesperson kind of no longer apply quite so much, do they? So we in the old days, we used to have hunter, farmer, Yes. You know, and what he's saying now is actually we've got almost diff we, we, we've got three conjoined micro mark my, sorry, we've got three conjoined selling personas in well, micro marketer, visualizer and value driver. Yeah. And they're the three conjoined selling. And it's worth explaining because people might actually not be looking at the book at this point. On the left yeah. hand side, we've, it talks about the buying journey, really. And it said the micro marketer is stronger at the planning phase, the value driver is stronger at the evaluation risk phase, and then the visualizer is strong in between those two points. So what he's sort of saying, I mean, I'm, I'm summarizing him for, probably unfairly, really. He's saying, if you want to get some leads, you've got market, 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 uh, and then you've got to think about value towards the end of it when you prospect trying to evaluate risk, i.e. make a buying decision. Yeah. Absolutely. I don't quite feel like you've defined situational fluency. Well, that to... wasn't my definition of situational fluency. No, but I'm just saying before we go forward, I think All right, we should well, situational define fluency is defined, is defined well on page 46. Situational knowledge is the awareness of a buyer's circumstances as well as the understanding of the implications of that situation based on the seller's experience or learning. And then if you were to take that and extrapolate that into fluency, three, three parts of micro-marketer, visualizer, and, and value driver, then you would think about how you've got to flip between those three different points. Depending, depending on where on, the customer is in their journey at any given point in and time. And depending on where the journey is, that's based on your situational knowledge. And what he talks about is agility in the salesperson. Yes. So in the old days, you know, like, and I know I hark back to the late 90s, when I first came into it, you were either a, an aggressive, grumpy hunter or a wet account manager. And that was kind of it, or a channel guy. They were sort of not a channel guy, <laughs> which in those days was deemed triply wet. Um, whereas now, actually, those lines have blurred significantly. In as much as actually, one minute you've got to be a micro marketeer, the next minute you're a driver. And it's like I say, I think a lot of the guys I see now, where I look at them and think he's a top guy, this guy, 
often they've got that micro marketing thing no, going they've on. always had agility though haven't they yeah they've always had agility and do you know why they've always had agility because top they're guys intelligent. Are, ah, <laughs> yes they're because they're just, just bright because bright people bright people work out what bright people work is. out to do it yeah. and actually maybe a, a, our guy would have been better off just saying listen smart people will do all right yeah, I know, but uh, you couldn't have written 47 pages on that, could you? No one's going to give you a book deal for well, that, But equally, it's like I said about 20 minutes ago, at no point has the guy made reference to sit down opposite your prospect, ask them questions and find out where they're at. Yeah. So it's interesting he talks about this micro-marketer thing. I mean, I was talking to a client when I took a brief off him recently. Uh, and this particular client, they sell services, solutions um, around analytics and they just lost the guy who very amicably got an offer as a sales director. He couldn't help but take it. And I said, what makes so-and-so so good? And he said, what he does is that he creates these mini value propositions. He walks around the office and he talks to the, to the delivery guys and he'll say, what are you working on? And the delivery guy says, I'm working on little Project X. The client briefed me whilst I was on site. And to be fair, I just signed him up on a, a contract that didn't even need sales involved. And he'll say, all right, well, what, what was the problem the client was trying to fix? And the client, and he'll tell him, and he'll say, right, okay. And he'll say, well, if that customer's got that problem, there's got to be 50 others with that same problem. And then he'll create literally tiny micro-marketing campaigns based on that issue. I mean, it's obviously a good thing to do. It's the right thing to do. But the good guys were doing that 20 years ago anyway. Possibly, yeah. Well, definitely. 100%, they were just sending out letters having read the company's annual statement. But this is it's going not, deeper than different. that. It's going into nichey, nichey, deep, 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 deep. Yeah, I don't issues. necessarily agree. I think I think the good salespeople have always had a bit of an ability to an extent, to do that. yeah. And then he talks about being fluent, situationally fluent, doesn't he? And I for and and then he, he, he digs into being a. He makes an interesting comment. High demand markets are like rising tides; they help to float all boats. And I did write yes, Timothy. Why? Well because that's part of my theory about a lot of the people that we work with. Often we meet people that have got high salary demands, have an extremely inflated opinion of themselves. And actually, if you look at it, you worked for market leading company X, market leading company Y, market leading company Z, all of which had operated in buoyant hot markets. And your shit doesn't stink. But actually, how good a salesman are you? And then they go to a little company like a startup that nobody's ever heard of and like the story in the book... They, they, they can't quite work out why they've not flogged anything. Yeah, I mean, I get your point, I guess. So he talks a bit about assertion and aggression. Which page are you on? 20, 45, Mike. He says, why don't companies simply change their hiring and development practices to align with what buyers want in sellers? It is really very simple. They are too short-term focused. Organisations depend upon monthly and quarterly results. And they think assertive or aggressive sellers who push for the business are the answer. In truth, this is really old-fashioned thinking. Did you like that bit, Jonathan? <clears throat> Let's talk about assertive, aggressive, cunning, sharp, influential sales salespeople, Mike. You see, I actually don't like all of those words together, to be perfectly honest. Because I think that it can be much better summarised as in having the personal self-belief to tell the truth. I think people get so carried away with this. You know, I, a lot of people will give me a brief and say, I want somebody aggressive. But they don't and know I'll what say, aggressive means, Mike. And I'll say, really? What do you want them to do? Do you want them to go and punch you? And they'll they, say, well, obviously not, Mike. So that's aggressive. They don't know what aggressive means. And I, that's what I mean. I think the word aggressive is wrong in sales. 
I think actually what the, you know the fundamental of this is telling people the truth and I, you know we were talking about it earlier being bold it's not it's just telling people the truth <laughs> yeah but that's a bold thing and you wouldn't believe how hard it is to tell the truth it's harder to it's harder to 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 not tell the truth and live a lie isn't it um if I did a statistical analysis of a lot of people whose careers weren't going well, I would say a significant proportion of them well, have got into the habit of not telling the truth. And what I mean by telling the truth isn't about saying that product X does X when it doesn't do it. It's about that moment where you look the client in the eye and say, you're going to do what? Nah, sorry, mate, that's a stupid idea. You know what it's about, Jonathan? It's about, where's the diagram? It's about situational knowledge. And having the courage to say, I know my market, I know what I'm doing, and that's right. I, I said to a guy oh, six right. months ago, he had an offer one of our clients, he had an offer at Oracle. If he's listening, he probably won't, you know, like this, and he definitely won't put his hand up to say it was him. And he uh, he went to he went to Oracle on a much bigger package than he'd been offered. So what you've got to understand is, you know that you're being paid too much. You don't have the self-confidence to ask yourself why they're paying you that much. Because if you, if you asked yourself why they were paying you that much, you know it's because they can't find anybody better than you, and you know you're not good enough to do that job. Yeah. He put the phone down, never spoke to him again, left Oracle six months later. Correct. But that's about honesty. That's honesty. Honesty with yourself, self-awareness. Well, Eads, or whoever it is, would say it's situational knowledge. Yes. Self-awareness, knowledge of the environment, being smart. Yes. So then he talks a little bit about... Uh, situational knowledge, capability, interesting comment he makes about capability knowledge. And he talks about sellers are expected to add value immediately. Buyer 2.0 engages a seller. The seller is expected to add value immediately. Therefore, sellers must not only understand their own product or service and capabilities they can provide, they must also have a good knowledge of available alternatives in the marketplace that could address the buyer's challenge or opportunities. Yeah, all right. And then he says collaborative sellers need to know what their capabilities do for customers and not just what the capabilities are i.e., and, and I was just uh, reading a book by Seth Godin at the moment um, called This Is Marketing, and he says, he talks a lot about Theodore Levitt, used to say that people don't buy a drill bit, but they buy, they buy the hole. But he said, actually, in the modern world, we're a, long, a lot further on from that. He said, people don't buy the drill bit and they don't buy the hole. And in fact, they don't even buy the shelf. What they actually buy is the feeling of having their books on display in front of their mates. All, all, all good? Sounds good? Yeah, and... and I think what he's saying is, you know, a collaborative seller needs to know what their capabilities do for customers, not just what the capabilities are. It's about seeing that much bigger picture, isn't it, really? Mm. Okay. Uh, collaborative seller must possess good sales people skills. And he makes an interesting comment here about the collaborative seller must have good selling skills, which I, I, I do really respect. Um, and it's nice that somebody is talking about selling skills, particularly it, it's a tonic after the few weeks we spent on Bob Berg, who doesn't believe in selling skills. Well, he, no, that's unfair, and I, I retract that comment. Um, what he does say is it, it, he, he doesn't put as much onus on it, does he? It's interesting, because I put quite go give, give a sell more on that section. Okay, right, so possibly that, that maybe I need to reread it. Um, and he says, selling skills are taught and learned. They're not something you were born with. What do you think, Mike? I, I underlined the same thing. I, I agree with that, I think, but some people are more predisposed to it than others. I wrote exactly the same thing. What about that lady we've just been doing work with whose son followed her into the world of sales? Oh, yes. He has been bred. He's like a 
a thoroughbred. He's exactly. been bred to sell. Or a client I was talking well, your to daughter. this daughter. She's daughter of two salespeople. Correct. My daughter. My two daughters are daughters of two, two salespeople. Yeah, correct. They're going to... So just by breeding and environment, they're going to grow up in that Andre universe. Andre Agassi and Steffi Graff have had a kid. Can you imagine? Can you imagine how good they are at tennis? <laughs> so, you know, uh, I was talking to a fellow this morning. His son followed him into his sales career. This guy is the VP of uh, EMEA and Nordics for a global major name enterprise software vendor. And I know his lad has got a sales job working for one of the enterprise software vendors. And you just think, that lad was born to sell. Well, the Rainers, Tom Rainers retired. Andy Rainer, top sales guy. Yeah. So... I get was it. Was he born to sell or was it? Because it's a real nature and nurture well, thing it's a, that, isn't it? But it's a nurture thing. But I think that actually a lot of salespeople are nurtured to their sales career from a very, very early age without realising it. And they are, as a result, their salesmen the moment they walk out of university. They are, but equally, I look at my parents. My dad was a wagon driver and mum was a teacher. So therefore you create... My sister works in a restaurant. You know, there's, yeah, no, my, there's no way I should end up being a salesman. My dad was a watchmaker. Oh, know. Yeah, but they sold flogs and watches to people over a counter, aren't they? Allegedly. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and then we talk about um, collaborative attitude. The key is to always act in the best interest of the buyer, even if that means a smaller sale or no sale at all. Buyer 2.0 value sellers who do the right thing, especially if the buyer knows the action a seller takes and not in the seller's sole interests. Well, let's just skip on from that because the next one we'll be talking about for a while. Hiring for situational fluency. Where's that? Page 50. Page 50. Right. So come on, what do you think to that? He's going to talk about assessing people for situational fluency in chapter nine. I'm really looking forward to well, that. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because if we take extend his topic to say that salespeople should be able to work out whereabouts the buyer is in their pursuit of information in the sale, I think you don't need to hire for situational fluency. I think if you're Drucker, you hire a person to do a job at that particular point. Why wouldn't you just look at it and go, right, most people are going to be 70% way through the buying process Let's just hire a mega picture. So let's say, for example, it's Salesforce versus, you know, I work for Salesforce, you work for Microsoft Selling CRM. All right? We're out to HSBC. We're both going to sit down. What you're going to do is you're going to sit and do what I was advocating earlier, which is ask loads of questions. Yeah. You're going to say, listen, HSBC, before we get into buying a CRM system, I want to find out where you're at, what information you've done. I'm not going to do that. And you're, and you're exhibiting situational view and situational yeah, knowledge. absolutely. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to turn up with 10 references. I'm going to turn up with a massive product demonstration team and I'm going to flog Salesforce. Who's going to win? Don't know. Interesting though, isn't it? Yeah. Well, what, is, what I think is interesting and what's probably changed since these guys wrote this book is if you look at a lot of enterprise software vendors now, um, they are very aggressive with marketing or very clever with marketing. So they're doing some really cute B2B marketing, content-driven marketing, micro-marketing, content, 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 information, information, information. The leads come in, SDRs get the leads, and they are sales development reps. Mm. And the SDR is now doing a large amount of the work. So the SDR, you're right. And then the sales guy And the SDR it. is presenting what in reality is an extremely qualified guilt-edge pitch to the sales guy. Then the sales guy gets it. Then they pass it on to the account manager. Then they pass it on to a customer success manager. Yeah. So why does it? That's my point. Why need? Why do you need situational so fluency? So you I, don't need I, any. No, I think that as a result, what you're getting is a generation of salespeople who are less situationally fluent. I mean. they're, they're less, and you don't need it because the SDRs are 
the SDRs are doing a large part. The, the micro-marketing is actually getting done by marketing, who are splicing and dicing and micro-marketing the market itself. The SDRs are working in very, very tight, highly defined streams within some of those organisations. The SDR is doing a really good job of qualifying, either via, for example, Drift, as a great example, as a bot platform, or Intercom, is getting people on the website, qualifying them, qualifying them through, right, then ringing them, then having a conversation with them and putting them into some stage in the pipeline where actually they're very, very, very well qualified before the sales guy shows up. The mm. need is understood. The pain is understood. The customer's probably even had a one-month trial. So exactly. actually I wonder, in certain environments, how much situational fluency is actually needed. Not much. But then on the other hand... What about the smaller business where, for example, I've been working on a client this morning where in reality, 50 employees, five, six people in sales, next sales guy, he's got to do his own micro-marketing and Correct. he's got to do his own. That's great and everything, but that he's is got the, to be much more situationally that's the fluent. employment trap that the smaller company has. Yes. You know, some of these big vendors, they hire people. And I literally laugh at how bad the hiring is. But their product and their, their system is so good that they can hire Muppets. They could hire my dog. Yep. Pretty cute dog. Whereas that small client of mine that I've been working on this morning, Got they all the has to hire talent. Yeah, exactly. I agree completely. Yeah, I think that's a, an interesting thought, that, Mike. Anyway, uh, yeah. well, we're pretty much at the end of the chapter there, actually. Yeah, absolutely. I did write, is now an easier time than ever to sell or is now a harder time than ever to sell? I think it's no harder, no different, is it? I think I, th I think it's like all things, the watchword that we were talking about earlier, it's hire intelligent people. I hate the CCAT tests that these companies do. I really do. But I see so much, I, c I can completely understand why they do it because they're testing, they're testing for intelligent people. And you know what? If you hire an intelligent person, they're going to be all right. Great respect to Lauren, who's listening. Lauren didn't know much about any of this kit that we've got before she turned up here. But, but she's, she's smart. But she's smart and she worked it out. Yeah. That, you know, that, that's the reality, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. For me, and my, my closing comment of this week's episode is, I think that the world has moved on a little bit to an extent with this book. In as much as I think now, buy a 3.0, as I'm going to name him, or maybe even buy a 5.0, in many respects, there's so much noise now. There is, but that's the, uh, that's what I was saying about this book. You know, what do I think about it? It's not a manual, but it's a good talking point, and you it's could, got you thinking. You could pick anyone, and, the, and, the, and for that reason, it's a good book. You know, you could pick any one of these chapters. You could be sat in a pub with any of your clients, and you and you could talk about any of those bits all evening. Yes, and I hope as we get on for the next chapters, we get a little bit more into some prescriptive. Well, I, you know, I like a manual. Ah, oh, don't we all? Yeah, but... Just, you, yeah. You, just tell me how to do it and I'll be all right. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> right, let's wrap up this week. We're going to have... So, just so you know, if you're listening, uh, we're going to do the next three chapters next week, three chapters after that, the week after, which will take us to the end of the book. And then we will have the author on the book, Timothy... Uh, uh, I got a mix-up. I thought we were having the other chapter. Are we having... Tim Eads. Timothy, Timothy Eads. T. Sullivan will be coming on the show. Oh, I've mixed two up now. Yeah. I've called Timothy Eads and Keith Sullivan. <laughs> so Timothy T. Sullivan will be coming on the show what day? On the 29th. So that will go live. So get reading the collaborative sale. I'll tell you what, it'll get you thinking. That's us for today. Thank you. Goodbye.